Welcome back to Operation Opera. This time, Elisa and I had a wonderful conversation with conductor and coach Stephen P. Brown. Uh, He and Elisa met through Facebook. She reached out to him and started a conversation, and then we got to have one. So enjoy. Great. So so where do we start? I am so excited to have Stephen P. Brown, conductor, here with us on Operation Opera. He has some amazing ideas about how we as classical musicians can get our music more out into the community that will be helpful to us and to our communities and um, just some great ideas for, I think sometimes as performers, we get discouraged and everything that that you have to offer, Stephen, I feel like counteracts that and we need more of that in our lives. So (laughs) you're here. That's very complimentary indeed. Well, yeah, the the problem is, of course, that, you know, the way society has developed over the last couple of decades, live classical music particularly has just been pushed further and further into its own bubble, into its own sphere. That's one reason why um, classical music has become as, as distant as it has become from society, because no one finds it particularly, no one can connect with it anymore. And, Mm. um, you know, it's always been my dream, if you like, to bring live classical music back into everyday life where it used to be, because it's so important. It's such a fundamental part of being human. You know, it's that communication thing. We, Ravi Zacharias calls it the language of the soul. Most of us know it's the language of emotion. People try and put music into words. Well, if we could, then we would, and we wouldn't actually mm-hmm. have music. You know, so it, it's time we actually figured out, okay, well, what we've got now doesn't work. How can we actually share live music with people and get them um, appreciating what it can do for us you know it's sorry did you were you going to say something sorry Lisa. i was but i'll remember you go ahead Rachel. i I had this thought as you know i read over a little bit of um just brief synopsis of some some of your ideas Stephen, and some things that you that you share with people as they're attempting to develop these kinds of relationships uh with others about classical music and as i've been immersing myself in the language of german I feel mm-hmm. like it really is so similar to learning a language, right? It's no fun if all you're doing is studying grammar. It's no fun if all you're doing is learning the notes, right? You have to find <laughs> you have to find something that speaks to you, and then well, yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, every language has some sort of construct. So once you've figured out how the construct of language works, and there's there's only, although there's about seven thousand languages on the planet, there's only a handful of actual constructs. So once you've figured out what they are, then you can learn a language real easily, real quickly. Music is one of those independent constructs that has its own thing. So yes, you can learn the notes, you can learn the repertoire, you can um, learn the dynamics and all the little markings, all that kind of stuff. But that's not the meaning. What's the meaning behind it? And often when I ask uh, classical musicians, what are you actually giving the audience? What, what is it you want them to get, you know, take away from your performance with them? They have no idea. Hmm. <laughs> right. Because, it, and one of the concepts you introduced, you introduced me to Stephen, that I really appreciated was this concept of chasing perfection. And I think that <laughs> we do get caught up in that and it takes us away from the ability to connect with other people because we're so wrapped up in this this sort of 
yeah, this endless race of we're chasing our tail almost. We're just mm-hmm. going in a circle, trying, trying, trying to achieve something that's really not actually achievable. And, and so it's not worth focusing on. I mean, the focus right. should be on enjoying, which that was such a great reminder too. So Rachel, I think I told you, but Stephen and I had a call um, where it was just the two of us on the phone for about an hour and 15 minutes. And um, he was introducing me to these concepts and also um, sort of sort of coaching me and helping me to understand. He was asking me a lot of questions and sort of picking my brain. And that was one of the questions that he asked me actually, where he said, well, what do you want to give the audience? And I started kind of talking and he was like, okay, but keep going. Like it wasn't, it wasn't coming out very <laughs> what's, easily. Yeah. What's like, the, what's anything the that was mm-hmm. very tangible. I mean, I talked a lot about a lot of the concepts that we talk about with the transparent singer and on our podcast, which is like having that sense of connection or, you know, what I try to achieve in my music is a sense of effortlessness that comes from trust. And of course, a lot of hard work, but that I'm trying to convey this sense of excellence that comes from my dedication to the, to the art and so that they can appreciate it. But it was all sort of these very intangible, um, ideas, you know, that are, um, <laughs> that sound yeah. Yeah. Kind of good. And they were but very, and they were very self-serving. And I don't mean that in any impolite way whatsoever, but because we've grown up, basically we spent decades in a practice room or performing for our peers or conductors or decision makers or professors, we've been pe- you know, performing for people who are there to critique us. And the yeah. real world isn't. When we take That's music right. out of our bubble and put it in the real world, then what is it that we're doing? And I liked what you were saying before that we're trying to chase this perfection thing. Um, you know, it's like, I'm going to craft the perfect sentence. I'm going to take this language, whichever, if it's English, German, <laughs> American, because English and American are different languages, <laughs> believe me. Says <laughs> the Brit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if we take all these languages and we're trying to construct the perfect sentence, you'll never achieve it because person A will think of it differently than person B will. And then you're, you're, on top of that, you're now trying to form the letters. Do you remember handwriting? Do you remember that? Do I remember I it? Right. <laughs> I remember in fourth grade being told that I would be using cursive all of my life. Well, ha right. ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you're also trying to form the most perfect letter shapes. And again, it's a perfection that will never be reached. And what we're doing in music is we're focusing on the shape of the letters. We're focusing on the construct of the sentences. And we've forgotten what the meaning is. What's the point of writing the sentence in the first place? Absolutely. Right. I had we can't te- see the forest for the trees kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a teacher that asked me, you know, what is it that you want? And I said to make people cry. Yeah, like, that's, fair enough. That's like that's what I want to be able to do. <laughs> Good job, Rachel. You answered it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> no. Of course, it depends why and how. And, you know, right, exactly. And like, are you really sure? Like, this is supposed yeah. to be a comedy. I mean, are they laughing really hard? Like, because... I was going to say, we want to cry for the right reasons, the not right. because it's so right. bad. Right, just be like, oh, get her off the stage. It's so <laughs> painful. Yeah. <laughs> well, and my, it's so much of my experience has been, uh, in fact, it was interesting as I spoke with Stephen, I, re- I realized that I had kind of gone into this realm of, of concertizing and, and creating my own opportunities to perform and share what I do. And in, in those cases, it was always sort of this blend of classical music and jazz and, and just sort of a variety of things, some, some more, more popular music in some cases, like if it was a more of a holiday concert or whatever, I was just doing a a bit of everything. There was some Messiah in there. There were, you know, what are you doing New Year's Eve? There was, you know I mean? All kinds of different things all together. And, um, but I never gave myself credit for those, 
for those concerts. It was like my, my mentality of chasing perfection meant that these things were just sort of this sidebar and they didn't count toward anything in my career. They didn't count. I mean, I, I couldn't put them on my resume, right? I couldn't impress anybody with them. But in those experiences, that was when I truly connected with the audience. That was when I, I felt like I, I had true fans, like people who looked at me and loved me and saw the joy that I brought to that music and truly connected with it. Absolutely. When we get to those big venues, those big events, those big orchestra gigs, the big opera gigs, whatever, you know, they, that's what we've put on a pedal stool. We've put those up as the ultimate thing. And and it's it's nice for us. It's nice for the performers, for everyone involved. Um, a lot of audience do get a kick out of it, but there is no connection. It is a it is entertainment. That's what that is. They turn up, they pay their hundred dollars or whatever it is, and then they go home afterwards. You can't actually see who you're connecting with. It's just mm -hmm. a, either a sea of faces or it's actually dark out there. You mm -hmm. can't really connect. So the recital thing. That's where music lives. That's the communication thing that we were just talking about. It, it's the point where you can see the whites of people's eyes. And, and especially if you do it in a round or in a U-shape so that people are all around you, then, the, then you're not going to be any more than two, three, four rows deep. So you, mm. can, you can actually, you know, you make the audience feel like they're part of something bigger than them. If you're still on a platform, even if it's a recital for 50 people and you're standing on a platform, um, and and you're looking out to a long haul. It's still them versus us. Mm. But but doing it in the round really makes that connection. And and as I say, that's that's when people can feel this thing that we're trying to call music, which you don't get in those big environments. And and when you make those sorts of connections, they do want to come back. They want more. They feel like they're part of what it is that you're doing in making the world a better place. And they want to they want to find out more about it and come to more of those events and bring someone with them. You're not going to get that yes. when you're on a big stage. Yes. And that's what's interesting um, about that as well, I think. And this is something that Rachel and I talk about. And it's one of the it's sort of a premise of the Transparent Singer, this thing that we started a couple of years ago, um, is that a lot of people want to go to the opera or to the symphony to say that they went, you know, and sort of, it's sort of a status <laughs> thing, right? And it's oh, absolutely. Sort, of, sort of grounds for snobbery in some ways. And, and I love this concept of take someone with you mm -hmm. um, that you brought up. It's like, it's really about that grassroots connecting with the person next to you, which I feel like, it, you know, at the opera, there isn't a lot of that connecting with the person next to you. It's sort of like, does my do I look better in my clothes than the person next to me? Kind of a Absolutely. relationship, yes. right? Rather than yeah. and, and I love this idea <laughs> of um, you know coming up with something salient about the music that you can con connect with, and then sharing that with someone else, and then you, the two of you having the shared experience of of recognizing that thing that's happening. And I, I think that so much of it is about that. It's about um, it's about finding something specific instead of just sort of sitting through this hour and a half long um, concert of the symphony where it's sort of like it, after a while, it's all just this homogenous sea of strings and brass and uh, percussion and everything. And it's sort of, there's nothing to really latch onto. It's just sort of well, if, unless, blur. Right. If it's not intentional, if it's not deliberate, every performer needs to go out. Now, a, a lot of performers can go out and share something with their fellow performers. That's okay. Um, it's better if there is someone in the audience or if there's a, a superior being in the world, spiritual, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter. As long as you're performing for somebody and you you want them to come away with, to, to actually have something worth paying for. Look, it, where do you spend your money? You spend your money on making your life better. 
That means either making something easier so you don't have to do the washing up, you now have a dishwasher, or it means doing something that you can't do yourself or you don't want to do yourself or you don't have time to do yourself. That's where we spend our money. Why would anyone spend their money on watching someone having a great time on stage and having a ball? Absolutely. I mean, they need to be a part of it. <laughs> right. So so you need to have that deliberate intent to actually go out and get, make sure that somebody in that audience comes away impacted positively somehow by what it is that you're sharing through this music. Now, when that happens, they're going to go and tell someone. If, if you think about what you buy, 90% of what you buy is based on personal recommendation. Yeah. And it's the same thing in music. If you affect someone's life, they are going to go out and tell someone. And you know what? When you email them, because in your recital, you gathered everyone's emails, right? Hint, hint. Mm -hmm. Then you <laughs> let them know when your next recital is, they're going to tell that friend and say, yeah. you know what, come along, they're doing that show on that day. Let's go together. I remember, yeah. I remember when we, I think we, it was our first performance when we, we performed at a little place in New York and a bunch of people came that uh, were, you know, dear friends of ours or just acquaintances. And, oh, yeah. And do you remember that? And do you remember everyone, like, yeah. had their phones out at different points and they were, <laughs> they were, like, recording our performance and a part of me that was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> was like, what do I, why mm -hmm. is this happening? But another part of me was like, this is so sweet because this is something that they want to remember and this is a moment that Absolutely. they want to share and, and, and that's good. And that's another whole thing. It is good. It's very good. And that's another whole thing about the technology. I tell people to get their phones out after the first piece of the concert, you know, probably most of my concerts, 60% of them, I actually tell them, okay, let's take your phones out. You, you hear this message at every concert you go to about turning, you know, turning your cell phones off, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Don't worry about that. Just take out your phone. And then I take my phone out of my pocket. And I say, um, okay, now let's all take a picture. And I take a selfie, uh, <laughs> selfie with the orchestra, selfie with the audience behind me, whatever. And then, and then if, if I get in a good mood, if I see a flash or something and I'm just feeling in a good mood, I'll actually start doing some funny poses, in which case the flashes start going off like crazy. And, and I'm like, okay, great, wonderful. Go post them, put them out on Facebook, do whatever you want with these concerts, tell people you're here. Now, while you've got your phone out, just make sure it's on silent mode. So don't put your phone away. Don't put it away. You know, take more pictures. Let's share them. Let's share this moment together. Let's make this special. Because we're living. It's... This is the world that we live in. Exactly. Yeah. You kind of need to embrace and... that this is this is a part of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and... and also you're 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 remembering that moment, right? And it's you're capturing that moment, um, and being very present in that, and sort of owning like this is something that happened to me, and it, or this is something that I was involved in, not just something that happened to me. And so it's sort of increasing that sense of ownership and that sense of yeah involvement and now, connection and you now have something to show your friend when you start telling them about it yeah you know so i've been thinking about something that you that you mentioned Stephen, earlier or something also in your literature about you know the the familiarity factor right about you know mm -hmm. these pieces being mm -hmm. something that that you know obviously has withstood the test of time and they keep resurfacing or keep being produced and I remember a couple of years ago, we, uh, we were in Paris and I fell in love with a player piano and I mm. thought seriously about at the how, flea market at the flea market in Paris. And I thought seriously about how I was going to get it home. And then I thought <laughs> about where I was going to put it. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, maybe I can't. But I, as I was looking at it and I was looking at the various um, musical scrolls that were, you know, a part mm -hmm. of the package deal. 
I saw that there were so many classical pieces that were, you know, just a part of what you would put on your player piano. You know, these are things, you know, especially Wagner and um, Strauss and, you know, and, and I thought about that and I'm like, wow, these are melodies that most people, I would say today, you know, don't know because it isn't in the zeitgeist the way that it was, you know, because mm -hmm. it was the thing that was written at the time. So, so what are your thoughts about that? Like how, you know. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, a couple of things. So yesterday <laughs> I was conducting a concert and, and it was called Converted Classics. We had a concert band and we took all classical music that had been converted so that a concert band can play it. Arrangements in other words. And, and I thought this was standard rep. You know, I'm thinking these are overtures that people have heard of. We played Rossini, we did Supe, you know, just the regular standard stuff that you hear on Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. They didn't even know that they these pieces were associated with those cartoons. They hadn't heard them before. I said, you like that one? You remember that one? Silence. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? They say this, you know, it's an older audience anyway, because, you know, where the concert is, it's it's a place where people do like to retire to. It's hot and sunny down here. But the, the thing is that, that these people have not been exposed to it. Yep. And they don't remember it, which is very, very scary. Wow. On the other side of things, let's remember this. At one time, those pieces were brand new. They weren't familiar. So they weren't old favorites. Yep. So when we talk about familiarity and we talk about presenting or sharing live music with people, yes, we people want to hear something that they're familiar with. Now, as you build a relationship with your audience, you go back to the same venue and you kind of end up with the same audience each time at that one venue. Yes, include stuff that's from outside the classical music realm that they might be familiar with. You include repertoire that you want to do. But over time, you repeat more of the repertoire you want to do and less of the other stuff because mm. now that becomes the familiar. You introduce a brand new piece that you're working with a composer on. You do it two or three or four times. That now becomes the familiar piece. Mm. And that's how you grow you know, that connection and how you know, people, well, you know, there's this, this piece by David Glock. Who? Never heard of him. No, it's all right. Don't matter about it. Or, or a movie score or something. I, I came across Exodus recently. Um, that was last weekend, actually. I was conducting a, a concert of Oscar-winning movie music. Mm. And Exodus was one of them. Absolutely fabulous. Ernest Gold. I've never heard of the guy. I, the, the movie was long before my time. I knew nothing about it. It's from um, the 30s, right? Is that... it's, it was actually 1960. Oh, it's not that and old. It, okay. it was, no, and it was based... Uh, the, the, the set was 1947. But... Um, yeah, it's an old movie score to, to me. I mean, I've, I've just never come across it before. And I fell in love with this music so much. Mm. You know, and, and yeah, I want to do it again. And that will become familiar to me in my life because I've listened to it and I've found recordings and done my research and whatever else because I like it. And that's what will happen. Music that you introduce to people will become familiar if you make it familiar to them. Hmm. And when you say you perform it like three or four times, like, are you saying that, you know, you put on a, con a concert every couple of months? Are you saying do the same piece at each concert? Well, yeah, in, in the coaching program, I've, I've developed a system of booking gigs, finding venues and all that kind of stuff and finding the audiences. And, and in that approach, um, you can go back to the same venues. Um, and they're small venues because literally when we're talking about a recital of 50, 60 to 100 people, let's get out of the concert hall. 
go to literally a space, any space that can seat 50 people. So yeah, you're going to set up a, a little recital in, in venue A, you'll do it in other venues or whatever else, probably the same program because they're going to be different audiences. Right. But then when you come back to venue A, you're going to take probably a third of the program that you did there last time. If you go to any non-classical concert with a celebrity of some kind, be it a band, U2, Rolling Stones, whatever, Lady Gaga, can you imagine the uproar if they didn't play their greatest hits? Of course. <laughs> right, right. So Those why, are the ones so, that everyone wants to hear. So why are we different? Why do we actually put different things out there? How come we don't make that connection with, with our fans? I wonder if part, part of it is because... Well, I think there's a few reasons, but I wonder if we really feel like these new pieces have that kind of staying power. I mean, if I really fell in love with a piece and thought it was absolutely beautiful, I might want to perform it several times, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But not ad infinitum. You, we can get away because we are classical musicians. We can get away with doing it two or three or four times and then changing it up with something else that it has that you've done a couple of times so if you do piece a five times in the same venue over five or six months same audience then you know that's probably enough but in the last couple of recitals you've done this other piece a couple of times that now replaces that familiar piece so you can you can change it up over time but i mean if you ever came out with it with your own greatest hit cd then good luck because you're going to be playing, performing some of those, singing some of those same songs for the rest of your life. Right. All right. So, you know, go ahead and do CDs, but don't do a greatest hits because then, then you're stuck. Choose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Something I've been thinking about, um, since uh, since we spoke, Stephen, and it, with regard to this this whole idea of, and I'm I'm still very much a novice when it comes to um, developing a fan base. I mean, the the times that it's happened for me, it's just been sort of a fluke. I, I'm not sure what the formula was at all. I could probably couldn't repeat it, or if I did, it would also just be an accident. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I one of my favorite movies is um, Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is like a an, a documentary, but not really a documentary. Yes. Have you seen yeah. this? I, I have never seen it. I I can't wait to see it because I know what the premise is, and I I just love that someone's actually opened up to the public that this is all deliberate. This is all you know. We're actually putting it out there. You are being manipulated. Yes, uh, yes, but that's the thing uh, is, yes. but, the, but that's the thing. I think that um I think that there's a way though because the thing is okay. So I have to say when I found your when I saw your ad, Stephen, it was on Facebook, right? And normally I scroll right past ads on Facebook because I'm just like. You know, I don't know what it's about, but they're going to want my money and I, I don't, you know, maybe they're going to try to scam me or whatever. But for some reason, I felt like yours was different. I love this. <laughs> it story. is different. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is different. And I knew, and, and I knew, I still didn't know until we actually spoke on the phone. And I was like, okay, this guy is actually sincere. And honestly, I was like, he's, he's like from another planet because he has these ideas and he believes in them. And he's like, been doing this for, I don't know how many years you've been doing this, 20 years or longer, mm -hmm. this whole, the whole idea of the recitals and all of this stuff. Yeah, but I yeah. just, well, yeah. it, 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 I'm just from another country, not another planet, but that's, I was so taken aback by um, right. the sincerity. And um, like I, you were on the phone with me 
absolutely for free. You didn't ask me for any money. And yet you were very interested in my, my career and my, my life, my music, what, what I wanted to do, my dreams, and sort of got me talking and thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, well, well, here's the thing that, yeah. that, okay, yes, I use stuff that is working in the world today. You won't find me very active on social media. However, I do have a big advertising budget and I'm going to spend those advertising dollars where I can get the most bang for my buck, the most return on the investment. Right now, that's on Facebook. Mm. So I'm using Facebook ads, but that's not social media. That's advertising. Right. Big difference. I, I don't because for, well, well, you know, we can talk about that another time perhaps, but the whole social media thing is, is just transformed the world. So you saw my ad, you watched, uh, you know, a webinar. I think I did a live webinar uh -huh. you probably watched, and then you set up a call after that. Now, all three of those touch points are designed to help you accomplish what you want to achieve. Right. And that is the bottom line. Zig Ziglar said it most best. He said, you know, be, be what you think about, or you, you know, what you think about is what you will become or something like that. And, and if you go out and help other people accomplish what they want to achieve, then you will end up at some point getting what you want out of life. Now, my passion is for live classical music. That's it. I wish I could perform everywhere, be everywhere, all that kind of stuff. I just physically can't be. And I do actually get a kick out of helping other people share the music that they have with the world and making the world a better place. And, and if we take that approach, if we get this focus off of us and our chase for perfection and our assumption that the audience is filled with other students, other performers and singers and instrumentalists, teachers, professors, audition panels, if we get out of that assumption that, that that's who we're performing for, then we can actually share the meaning behind what we're doing. When we're doing that deliberately with that intention that we spoke about earlier, then that is going to help somebody accomplish what they want to achieve. Now, specifically, when you're booking venues, you want to help the venue accomplish what it is trying to achieve. And when right. you do that, they'll come back and they'll ask you for more. And that's how you build your audiences. And, and, and basically, if we're real about this, every single business, organization, not-for-profit, whatever it is, actually has the same mission. They want more people involved. Mm -hmm. Specifically in the, in the music industry, in the opera world, they want butts on seats in the audience. Yeah. Now, if you go around doing these little recitals where you're connecting with audiences, you're building those relationships, and you perform in a place that seats 50 people, but 60 people turn up, you've got people standing. The industry will see this. Whoa, wait a minute. Wherever Alyssa and Rachel go, there are people standing. They've they got an audience. I need to book them because they'll bring an audience to my theater. Yeah, right, so, because you're, that's what they want to achieve. And so exactly. you are providing the thing that they want. Exactly. When you, Rachel, yes, you, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, I'm listening and I'm, go, I'm computing. I'm just thinking about all these things. <laughs> <laughs> in my head. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about when you talk about venues and booking venues and you're saying, you know, any space, you know, uh, preferably something that's no, not more than like four rows deep, a place where you can actually see the wide and the eyeballs, all of these things. But for me, part of what I love as a performer 
is that is that separation. I I love to feel people rather than see them. I don't know if we that kid makes our, sense. Yeah, we kid ourselves. It's like people who say musicians who say, I love teaching. Um, how did you get into teaching? And and most people do. I don't get me wrong. Most people do enjoy teaching. Some actually do love it. Well, you know Rachel what? They go, then go be a teacher. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, there are those who don't like it either. Um, but most musicians, because they're not taught how to run their lives, how to actually use this thing that they've been studying for 15, 20 years, nobody actually guides them into what to do with it and how to earn money at it. So they end up doing whatever gigs turn up, including teaching. And because of the stereotypical image of a starving artist who and the classical musician who's just running around from one place to another who's doing this that and the other thing including teaching we kid ourselves we actually are not being honest with ourselves and we say that we enjoy teaching and we might like it but it's not what we got into music for it's not why we studied all those years yeah if you're a we, performer you're a performer exactly but we tell ourselves that um, you know, teaching's fine. It's great. Yeah, no, it's not just to pay the bills. I do enjoy it. And when you, when you see those kids' faces sparkle because they've learned something, yeah, okay, you know, that and the rest. It is precious. It does, you know, it does give me a kick sometimes when I do that. But I want to pick and choose how I teach now. Yeah. And the same thing with that audience connection. We hide behind this thing because there's, when when you are um, when you're not facing that audience and you're not making that personal connection there's no accountability you can do anything you want because you're now a character you're not yourself yes and i love being a character right but that's not where music lives why music is that fundamental human language thing i mean you know mathematicians like to say that that math is actually the world's only universal language but that's untrue because there are people there are languages there are cultures that don't actually have numbers in their language hmm. but they sing and they can play drums Music literally is the only thing that every single human being on the planet that's ever existed can relate to. If you have a pulse, you have a beat, therefore you have rhythm. If you can make any noise with your mouth, you can, in fact, sing, because singing is sustained talking. And then you go into all the technique of making it powerful and projecting all that kind of stuff and whatever else. But that's, you know, when you, when you get right down to it, when you're honest with yourself, that's where music is. It's really very fundamental. It's communication between human beings. When you're playing a part, when you're hiding behind a character, you can still be in that character and connect with the audience, but you've got to see the audience. They have to be able to connect with you as an individual. Are you saying because without that, that's when it becomes entertainment? Yes, absolutely. And what is the negative of that? there's no longevity why did they come back so they had a good time very nice that's not why people part with their money they make they may want some entertainment something to do if they have the extra income and that's what's happened we were saying before about the image and of the industry right now and the elitism of those who want to wear their fancy dresses and sparkly jewelry that's what it turns into it's an mm. image thing i went to this pop star i went to billy joel's concert at the, at the local arena and spent $400 on a ticket down the front seat. Hey, look at me. I'm wonderful. 
So talk to me then about, because this, I find this fascinating. Um, it is. Isn't so it? Maria Callas, we, we often use her as an example because she is, she came to my mind as well, you know, because she is the goddess of character, right? <laughs> yes. But... So is it mm. that she always was so committed to every character? Like she, she put the interpretation in some ways before anything else. And in that sense, people did come and continue to come back because they felt connected to her as a person, as well no. as performer. Okay, cool. What? Why? No. Talk to because me. <laughs> that's a completely different age. That was a completely different society. That was the only way people actually got to experience live music, and they didn't know any different. Now, you can go online and see on YouTube Maria Callas performing anytime you want for free. Sure. The whole way human beings in the Western world have, has, have adjusted their lifestyles to be instant online surface. The more technology that we have, social media has made us more connected than ever and has made us more isolated than ever. I, I totally agree with that, but I, yeah. I still don't quite understand um, what you're... So, so you're saying that a performer who is not... Who, who is performing? Hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not quite understanding what you mean by, you know, by needing to well, have a separate, like by not by needing to not have any kind of separation. I guess I, I'm, or or that it's from a different time. What does that What does that mean when it comes to character? Well, if if you yeah, if you're if you're telling a story, if you're actually performing, you if you are representing somebody else, which is what most opera is then, yeah, you go ahead and you act that character out. And then the people identify with that character, not with the singer. So people are going to go and see that performance of that opera, that particular story over and over again. That's why Bohem is so popular, because people can relate to those characters. They don't really, you know, in all honesty, again, we need to be honest with ourselves. If we are honest, people don't care who's singing. They love Bohem. When they see Bohem on the program, they're going to go in 10 and they'll probably take someone with them because it resonated with them. Yes, sure. Okay, yes. That, that's not building a career for you as a singer. I see. Right, and I think this is, an, this is actually kind of ties in with our discussion with Kathy Kelly last week about sort of putting on the straitjacket that is opera. And so when you go to play one of those characters there are a lot of restrictions that you're taking on yourself, right? And you can still put your stamp on the role in some small way, you know, by the way that you, you know, who you are musically and, and your choices in, of interpretation and that kind of thing, like Joyce Di Donato when she did Maria Stuarda, which was like the whole thing that kicked off the transparent singer, right? Because she was so committed and it was like she as an individual came through um, in the character and through her musical choices, which were so strong, everything was very committed, but that is like the 0.001% of opera singers. You know what I mean? Most sure. opera singers are just trying to sound as good as Maria Callas or maybe not sound as good, um, but sound as good as Joan Sutherland and act as well as Maria Callas. And they're sort of trying to fit in these shoes, right? Of people who went before. Instead of because, being themselves. Yeah. Right. Right. So you're saying yeah. it was a different time in the sense that she was the trailblazer. Well, not so much the trailblazer, but that's how people, I mean, let's talk about, for example, take the symphony. Clapping between movements of a symphony is considered taboo. Do we agree on that? 
Yes. Sure. Right. Where did that come from? It's a tradition. Okay. When did it start? Um, music history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's less than a hundred years old. In okay. 1930s, Toscanini was conducting the NBC Symphony for his live radio broadcasts, and they were running over time. The programming was getting late, and everyone's getting really annoyed with him. He insisted, "Look, we've rehearsed this, we've timed it. I'm doing it exactly the same tempos. There is no way." that we should be running over time. And they realized it was the applause between the movements that it was getting in the way, so they cut it out. And then the purists have picked it up over the last 70 years or so and have made it this big thing that, oh, no, you're going to interrupt the flow of the music, all that kind of stuff. What BS? I'm sorry, but, you know, it, it's, it was for the technology that that uh. tradition came into being. Beethoven, I mean, Mahler even, didn't expect people to stay silent during his music. Beethoven, when he premiered um, his music, he'd write a new symphony. He would play the first couple of movements, then he would do a piano concerto, and then he would do a couple of songs that he wrote, and then he would finish with the last two movements. His concerts were three to four hours long, no oh, wow. intermission. People were wandering in and out of the, of the theater all the time. They were drinking, they were talking, they were laughing, eating, doing whatever, because that's the environment that, that he was used to. Now, if you play a Beethoven symphony or take Tchaikovsky, his, his uh, sixth symphony, that first movement, oh my goodness, how can anyone stay silent after that first movement? Right. It's right. such a jubilant thing that you need to get up and cheer and whistle and clap and you know just make a lot of noise because it's the only way the performers know they did a good job. And it's also uh, the only way for it to really feel like it's a connected living thing, right? Exactly. Because if yeah. you if you decide I'm not going to clap after this, that is a deliberate like departation. Distance. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you're you are you are leaving truth behind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yes. No one's being honest with themselves. <clears throat> no one's being honest with the performers. And, and you're, you're now creating something that is not music. This is an environment. So that's yeah. how society and chasing perfection. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And the academics, particularly, nothing against, you know, higher education or anything, but they've taken this thing and grown it into this bubble that just is so unrelated to the real world. And, and that is, that not only is it a problem, but it's not real. Yeah, I was reading the other day something that showed uh, it was a little diagram of, of a box. I think it was it, it may have actually been Toscanini's box at La Scala. And it was it showed this little picture of, you know, here's where he put his hat. Here's where he had his little table. Like you could bring all of your stuff to your box and you could decorate it however you wanted. It was like your space. It was like a little apartment away from <laughs> from your house. And I thought that was so interesting. Like imagine you know, imagine going to the opera where it's not just like, you know, you're allowed to be in there for the, for a certain amount of time. And then you, and then you have to leave. Like there's something about the, you know, the formality, uh, that creates such distance, right? Um, yeah. It the makes, etiquette. Yeah. The etiquette that makes us, again, back to sort of learning a language, you know, this musical language that is so glorious. You know, if you tell someone, you know, that's wrong, more than a couple of times they're gonna be like screw this i don't want to learn about this you know like, right. nobody exactly. wants to that's be told that they're an idiot that's exactly what's happened and and you know my retort has been you know someone tells me that i'm doing something wrong or i've uh, conducted a piece of music too fast or too slow or not not enough rebuttal whatever uh they say i say well thank you very much for your feedback and next time you get on the box and you wave this you can do that that's that right. 
Next time you're in the arena, buddy. Next time you're yeah. the one that's, that's right. yeah. that, that Teddy Roosevelt quote. That's right. One of your favorites, Rachel. It is. It is. Oh, the critics. It's it's Tell not the right. critic who counts. That's right. That's right. That's right. Everyone can be a critic. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to say this is no good. <laughs> I yes. mean, especially in the, you know, you talk about social media as we briefly mentioned earlier. You know, it's it's such a place where where the shaming culture is just thriving. It's so easy. Again, again you can hide anonymity. Exactly. Yeah. You can become your own person. I mean, even if it's your real name, your real photo, or whatever else, you can still hide behind that online persona. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and transparency and honesty are are kind of important when it comes to creating an experience that is attainable and that is relatable. And leaves a legacy. He's everlasting. Yeah. Yeah. I, interesting. Cool. Really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can I, can I bring it back around to, I started to say something earlier and then I never really quite finished it because I, I did like a big sidebar and then I, yeah. Anyway, but I brought up exit through the gift shop. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the interesting thing, I, I mean, I just find this movie so, um, it's just such a, a roast is what I would think. It's like, <laughs> it's on, on people, right? Because um, like, how do we know what's good? How do we know when we don't ourselves have the sensibilities? Like my husband uh, is an oil painter and he has this, this education and this training and this understanding of the way that paint is handled. And so when he, we go to a museum together, he understands the paintings on a different level from what I do. And I recognize that. And uh, on the other hand, I'm a musician and I've been trained for many years and I've been doing this for many, many years. And so he kind of defers to me when it comes to musical things, although he has his own taste and his own ideas and that kind of thing, which is fine. Um, but what do you, how do you, when you don't really have the, the sensibilities to understand what is good, um, you know, when it comes, let's just say, say music, since we're all musicians here, um, like, what do you, what do you trust? And in the case of Exit to the Gift Shop, that was visual arts. And so it's like sort of this, this hype is built up around this person who is no artist at all. And yet the creations that he's putting together end up selling for tens of thousands of dollars or more. I can't remember how much it ended up being, but it was just, you know, one sort of, I, I would call it a painting, but it wasn't really a painting, but it was like a canvas with stuff on it. And, um, and ended up being just this, all this hype surrounding it. And I think it was in, in LA, wasn't it, Rachel? So the people of Los Angeles are, are flocking to, to go to this, um, exhibit of, um, Mr. No, what was this? Anyway, I can't remember his name either, but, but it's like, there's so much value attached, but it's only because of, um, this hype that they've built up and it's kind of a joke on the public, right? That they're going to value whatever, you know, whatever word of mouth tells them is good. Well, there, there's lots of issues, you know, in, involved with this. And yes, hype has a big thing and hype is never everlasting. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one thing that, that Lady Gaga particularly enjoyed was her fashion stuff. And now she's just dressing quirky in her own things, but no longer is she wearing meat around town. Um, you know, so the hype thing is is true. It is real and you can earn you know, the, the number of one hit wonders that are out in the world is, is incredible because you make your money and then 
you don't have to work for the rest of your life or even worse your kids don't have to work because of copyright laws now being yeah, yeah. i think is it not it's going up to 90 years soon which is really scary after someone's death so that's two generations of people who don't have to work you can live off of their great grandparents but the whole point wow. of trying to make is the fact that yeah the hype thing is real it is instant and it is empty once once it's done it's done now in order to um make something that's that how do you know if something's good or not we go back to the fact that we rely a lot on what other people say about yeah. things and and what are they going to say it's they're only going to say something if you impact them if you make their lives better somehow you change their perspective the way they deal with an emotion or a memory that they've buried whatever it is that that you in, that they get out of your performance if you impact them if you change their lives somehow for the better that's why they're going to remember it now they don't know how to verbalize it they don't know what to say and they're certainly not going to get personal and deep with a work colleague you know right. say oh you know that helped me deal with my my mother's death blah 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 and you know it I went to a great concert and it was really very special. And you can see a little tear, you know, the the eyes water up a little bit. That's enough. That's all they're going to share. But now they've shared about that concert. They've shared about that performance. Next time they come round, they're going to invite that person they they spoke to about it with. And that's how you build the long-term thing. The big rush, the big instant um, success stuff. Mm. Number one, it's never instant. It's always, always been developing over many, many years but it's going to be over as quick as it actually came along and yeah you might you might make a lot of money but that that's not what that's not why we do what we do yeah that's interesting i wrote down when i was when i was started talking about exit through the gift shop i wrote down hype versus sincerity because that's the thing is um this sort of this idea of what you, what you offer people is earning a lot of money by doing live concerts Mm -hmm. um, seems like, is that even sustainable or how does that work? And the sincerity aspect of it, I guess, is this helping others achieve what they're trying to achieve. Absolutely. And I just love that. I just love the, the sort of altruistic nature of, of how that, you know, and the, the sort of karma in the way of like what goes around comes around that we sometimes talk about, which is not actually really karma, but, um, but that, that mm -hmm. idea of pay it forward and, and then, you know, you end up receiving in the end. Um, and I, I think about people like, um, I'm, I actually don't know his name. Is it Andre Ryu? Oh yeah. Andre Ryu. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, or even someone like Lawrence Welk or, mm -hmm. you know, yep. these people who are kind of the, the, the concert masters or the band leaders or the MCs or the, you know, the people who maybe some kind of what you do um, sometimes too, Stephen, nowadays, um, very much, yeah. but who are putting together, you know, as a person chasing perfection, I've never really been able to appreciate because I think, you know, well, sure, you know, these are talented people and they're, and they're making music and it, you know, it doesn't sound bad, but it's nothing, you know, spectacular. It's not out of this world. And yet they have this following you know, the public loves that. And they're just, you know, they have these, this following of probably millions of people, I would think. Um, and of course, Lawrence Welk is on TV. And I don't know exactly what I the story is you, with Andre Ryu. My great-grandmother told me about Andre Ryu years ago. My great-grandmother, <laughs> when she was probably 98, was like, Rachel, do you know Andre Ryu? He's just wonderful. 
So yeah, yeah there you go. That's an example. So, yes, yes, yeah. but but so many people are connecting with that. Exactly. So many people are connecting music, you know, and and it's it, yeah. We, so we well, tap into that, right? That's this. That's sincerity on some level, right? That's not hype, or is it hype? I don't know. The the presentation uh, start way well, kind of not actually because the presentation is very. Um, contemporary, although Ryu particularly dresses up in old, older clothes, they're all designed modern, you know, by modern people. But he struggled real hard in the late 80s, early 90s to actually get a foot into England because they thought it was just too gimmicky, it was just too crass oh. and too commercial. And then, yeah, yeah and then um, Classic FM came along, which was a, a classic, or they, they were a pop station, but only played classical music. So they only played one movement of a symphony. They never played a whole, a whole symphony except once a week on a Friday night. I think it was, but but you know that and and I've done that with my own radio station that I had previously. It was done upbeat. We had jingles. We had you know little snippets here and there. Um, it was fabulous. And then Andre Rieu became popular in England way after that. So probably twenty seven, eight, nine. That's when he started getting popular in England because they realised or the general public, the people who actually paid to put their own butts yes. on the seats were mm -hmm. loving this. They were impacted by it. It touched them somehow. Mm -hmm. Who says it has to be challenging and complicated and serious and, and all that kind of stuff? There's, I actually got a quote here from um, one chap, uh, Richard Demi, who's a euphonium player. And he says that, that a lot of euphonium music out there uh, the, the repertoire is not really good for recitals and audiences. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> because, it, you know, making a good recital emotionally compelling to the audience, we have ego-driven music for performers to show off with. Yeah. That's the problem. We music, Classical musicians in the, in the 21st century right now mostly exist for other classical musicians. Yes. Well, because in a way, I think that we've, we've done this to ourselves in, in, in some sense, Absolutely. you know, by accepting far too many performers in, into performing programs. And there are 50,000 music, music performance major graduates every year graduating college. 50, yeah, 000. that's crazy. What are they going to do? Right. And what you were saying before about your, your husband being oil painter and knows the intricacies of all of that. When we have mm -hmm. our music critics, we listen too much to the, the, the technical detail, the actual in-depth stuff that, and we avoided all the meaning yep. because music does mean something mm. different. The same piece, the same performance, the same performer will have a different impact on different people. And yet we listen to this critic because we want to rely on people and we think they know what they're talking about. Well, it became there, there came a time in history where critics became intellectuals, meaning that they started looking for stuff to say. Hmm. <laughs> Instead yeah. of actually... You know, in actually, instead of saying you should attend this or this was a great thing because that that performer in that environment at that moment in time impacted my life and the person sitting next to me in such a way that you'll never experience you know anywhere again. So next time they're in town, go see it. That's what critics should be doing. You know, this yeah. makes me this makes me think of it makes me wonder if the twenty four hour news cycle, you know, has if this is sort of how it's impacted classical music. You know, you know with the um, uh, with the trial of oh my brain, uh, you guys, the glove he killed. OJ Simpson. Thank you. <laughs> 
Thank you. She knows me. Um, So with the OJ Simpson trial and how that was televised and people had updates, I mean, and, and it was televised. The verdict was, you know, we actually watched it in school. I remember and it, it became the norm from pretty much that point on to expect to have news all the time. And I think because of that, you end up reporting in depth on things that are not worthy of an in-depth reporting thread. Oh, right. Yes. And I think this is well, yeah. like, if you think about you Twitter, do. like Twitter, someone will tweet something and then there will be a news station that will talk about this exchange, you know, which took, uh, you know, 30 times longer than the tweet took to write or Ugh. thought about. And I wonder if this is sort of a, you know, example of some, like how that's translated into the way that we critique music. Well, it's not just a 24-7 hour news cycle that they have to fill their time with. It's also sensationalizing everything. Yes. Everything is taken way out of context. And, of course, only good news doesn't sell. These companies, we forget. And, in fact, the, the vast majority of the public don't even want to admit that the news companies exist to earn a profit. Yep. And they, therefore, they're going to um, put out material, content, that will engage people so that they can sell advertising. Mm, that's will that's engage why they their exist. audience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's to mm. sell advertising. So how are they going to engage? Good news doesn't sell. Yeah. Bad news does. So Nobody they're going to wants to hear about everything. the person that saved but, the cat in the tree. Nobody wants to hear about the good yeah, deeds nope. of the, you know. Yeah. yeah, but but how does this fit in with helping other people achieve what they want to achieve? I feel like the news does not do that for people, and yet they're eating it up. Like, what are they getting out of it? I don't understand. <laughs> they don't have to. Well, one of the well, worst it's the entertainment thing, right? Well, kind of the entertainment thing, but it's yeah. also that we've stopped helping people think. Video and audio. I mean, audio to some extent, but certainly video when TV first started and it's now become, you know, what it is online. Um, people don't have to think anymore. And, and we prefer we are lazy. We're all lazy. We'd all rather, you know, what did I say that we spend our money on things that make our life easier? Yeah. You know, and we don't have to think when things are on video. We don't have to use our imagination. We don't have to process. There was a time, there's a there's a couple of symphonies out there. Mozart and Haydn both did joke-like symphonies where they played a joke, a musical joke at the end of the symphony. And, and people cracked up laughing because they got it. Why? Because they were following the auditory trail. They understood how a symphony worked, how a movement worked, how sonata form worked. They knew that this theme occurred, the second theme occurred, then they developed it into something else, and then we went back again. And then at the end, when, they, when the composers did something a little bit different, if it was you know, wild and crazy and wacky, yes, it was funny. But people got it because they were thinking. It was an experience. They were participating. Whether you're performing or listening, you are participating. In today's society, we don't know how to do that. Video does it all for us. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so these live music concerts is how we're going to take it back. Absolutely. And, and you're going to get more people impacted by doing it on a smaller, smaller venue um, with a smaller audience where you can connect directly. They can feel like they're part of, you know what, this is a club. This is just us. They don't realize that you've just done another hour somewhere else, two hours before, or even three times in a day, three or four days a week. They don't know and they don't care. They don't need to know about that. But right now, in this hour, in this space, 
they are part of you, you are part of them, and you've impacted their lives and made their lives so much better because of what you shared with them. And, and how can anyone let that go? Right. Oh. Rachel, any final thoughts? Well, I mean, this is awesome. Thank you. I know, right? <laughs> no, it's really I fun to, to sort of think okay. about all these things and how they sort of impact and, and impact society, but also impact, you know, the music. Because something that you touched upon, Stephen, that I, I think is so true is that we so often are playing for the critics and we're not, you know, I remember doing an audition and, and I was preparing for it and I, and there was a little girl that kept walking in and out of the audition room and I just had this feeling, I said, I need to sing to her. Like I'm, yep. I'm, I'm not here for the panel. I'm here for well, her. And that's, yeah, and that's something I cover, and I tell all my ensembles this, and I, and I cover that in my coaching program. You know, and, and this is why I called it Concert University, just because the URL was available, like the domain name. I just, you know, concertuniversity.com. <laughs> it was there, so I, I just took it right away, and that's what I call my coaching program because I even say in there who you should be performing for. And it is, it's always, it always needs to be someone very, very specific. Mm. Right. Because it's all context. All of that affects our psychology surrounding the way that we present what we're doing. Absolutely. And yeah. if we're presenting to critics, we're going to be chasing perfection. And exactly. that will leave us feeling hollow and like we're underperforming and or we're not fulfilling who we are. Right. And if you're performing for a, either a sea of faces or for a dark theater, then, then who are you connecting? What are you connecting with? You, you can't even see it. Mm. Interesting. That's awesome. So, Stephen, any any final thoughts? Any final plugs? Anything that you wanna that you wanna say about um, what you would like people to know, or if there's any kind of final remarks that you would like to share, please do so. Sure. You know what? If if you have a passion of any kind for live music, then just get honest with yourself. Get deep. Get rid of all the fluff and go share it that's mm. the bottom line you know just do it. it i've had that phrase long before on my wall long before nike ever stole it from me i wish i had you know but just go if you want to share like absolutely you know we have, we're passionate about this thing we call live music so you know what go share it with people that's it figure out how mm. to do that i might be able to help you i might not you know i, I don't know we just there are lots of people out there who can help you do it, but just go find someone and sing to them, play for them, do whatever. Awesome. Thank you so much, Conductor Stephen P. Brown. I, yep. I am such a fan. I'm such a fan of yours. I want to be on your mailing list. Oh, wait, I think I already am. But okay, oh, another thing I want to mention, too, and I don't know if this is uh, if, if this is not all right, we can edit it out. But you have a Facebook page also um, called. Oh, well, tell me what it's called. Uh, Conductor.StephenPBrown. Um, but there's also a group. There's a closed group. Which group. Only, oh. Yeah. Only allow certain people to come in. Um, and it's called Building Profitable Performing Careers. That's right. And it's uh, that was where you shared the thing about uh, the secret about helping others achieve what they're trying to achieve. And then that comes back around to you. Uh, the there's secret. There's room I for everybody so at the top. There's room for everybody. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very true. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. This conversation was immensely helpful to me and I'm sure it will be to our listeners as Definitely. well. I hope so. so. And if you guys want to write, you know, drop a line on my website, stephenpbrown.com or go to concert university or go to those Facebook groups, whatever you want to do. Um, you know, we can continue the conversation. Let's do that. <laughs>